Hello and welcome back. I'm Tom Parrish and I'm here with Dave Abrams. If you're from the Los Angeles area, you're likely to have heard of Dave and his company Avacall located in Burbank because he's the go-to guy for high-end video post-production professionals in that part of the country. If I'm working at a production or a post-production house and I need my most important monitors made as absolutely perfect as they can be made, I call Dave at Avacall. And you know, what a fascinating clientele he must have and all the stories he could tell. So I'm hoping we can eke a few of those out in our conversation today about the state of the art of display calibration for the Hollywood media houses. All right, so let's begin, Dave. I'm curious, being a display calibrator myself, what's a typical day like for you uh, calling on these higher end studios and clients and uh, post-production folks? Well, being in Los Angeles, a typical day usually entails a lot of traffic in moving from point A to point B, probably way too much traffic, <laughs> but um, Got it. we're often working with a very demanding set of clientele being in the post-production industry. Not only does your client know a significant amount about what we're doing as calibrators, but they often have a lot of extensive questions that are a little more advanced than your typical end user consumer in the home. Um, an end user may simply ask about having their system calibrated, a um, few questions regarding the brightness of the room and viewing in daylight and perhaps what a bias light is for behind the display. Whereas oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, certainly. Um, basic things, huh? Very basic things, because consumers don't usually get too much into what is, you know, color gamut mapping, what is grayscale tracking, so mm -hmm. much. You know, a lot of consumers, they're enthusiasts, they know a little bit about it, uh, they have an understanding, and then they have a trust for the calibrator to come in and simply do the job and make their picture look as accurate as possible. Whereas a post-production professional or, or a colorist such as yourself, may inquire about the differences in, you know, gamma and the limitations in gamma tracking within a particular display such as a plasma um, or what is a 3D lookup table and how is that going to improve my picture any or, you know, we're trying to match these two monitors and what are the intricacies and what do we need to worry about here and, and even so they'll even get into levels and can you check out my scopes and make sure my system's outputting properly, that kind of a thing. So. It certainly has caused us, you know, to step up our game in terms of having a higher level of service in uh, applying advanced calibration techniques and even advanced documentation because um, one of the things you can give an end user a very basic standard calibration report and, you know, it'll probably be over their head for the most part and a lot of them, I think, enjoy it but don't necessarily understand all of it which is just fine but uh, when you're in the post-production world you know you give them a calibration report and they want all the data they want to see oh exactly where is this where's my foot lambert reading how is the gamma where's my black level at how's the contrast you know is is the color right and if it's not right how far off is it you know and um that kind of thing so that they have that extra sense of security in in what they're using the displays for you know they're using it to create content and they want to be as as accurate as they can be because they want to produce the uh, best quality image possible well that's pretty fascinating well i can imagine your clients are asking you to make too often anyway 
very different technologies match up in the same suite, like an LCD and a plasma, for example, or an LCD and or maybe they're using OLEDs now and they've got a plasma or they've got an LCD client viewing screen in there. And let's talk about that a little bit. Is that difficult to do? Um, there's got to be some limitations there that drive you batty at times. Sure. Sure. Um, well, monitor matching is actually a large part of what we do within the post-production community. We get a significant amount of phone calls from people simply because you're driven quite a bit by the customers of the colorist themselves. So, for example, the customer is sitting there with the colorist and the colorist might be, you know, working on his or her Sony OLED and making artistic decisions. And then there's a Panasonic plasma for the client above the colorist in a typical room, let's say. And the client's sitting there and he's looking at the Sony OLED and he's looking at the plasma and they're going, hey, which one is right? Which one should I be looking at? Because I'm seeing two very different pictures between these two displays right now. And so I'll end up getting a call, you know, we'll end up getting a call simply because the colorist is now like, oh gosh, I've got this customer and they're questioning my integrity because my two monitors look quite a bit different and I need to get it calibrated so that at least I know which one's right, which one to go with and what to tell the customer. So we get a significant amount of work through the industry simply because the client is pushing the colorist to get the calibration done. Unfortunately, we'd love to have the colorist before the client even walks in the room to say, hey, I should get my monitors calibrated. And I think we're, we're seeing more and more of that as calibration becomes more critical and as these issues become more well known throughout the industry. But in terms of monitor matching, it is significantly difficult to do because today's technologies are so different and you're trying to make different technologies, whether it's an OLED, an LCD with a CCFL backlight, an LCD with an LED backlight, a plasma, maybe even a xenon lamp projector or a mercury lamp projector uh, match. So oh, it certainly yeah, yeah. can become very yeah. difficult because their capabilities are quite different and their fundamental engineering is quite different. So without going into too much detail, um, using we use advanced scientific data and instrumentation and methodology and algorithms in order to try and get the monitors to match as accurately as possible and it's not just about making the monitors match as accurately as possible it's about trying to hit the standard right because you want to hit your standard target so you're staying within specifications and then getting the monitors to match as best as possible within that standard so when we do monitor well, matching, we'll essentially evaluate the goals of our customers, such as wanting to calibrate to, let's say, Rec. 709 for HDTV with, let's say, a Rec. 1886 Gamma target again for HD displays, and we'll pick a hero display. So we'll say, okay, uh -huh. the Sony OLED is the primary. That's what the customer says they want is their primary reference, and let's say the, the plasma is just a secondary display for the client to, to view. So we'll calibrate that to the standard 1931 CIE model and we'll dial it in as perfectly as possible to that Rec. 709 and 1886. And then from there, we'll, we'll make measurements to characterize the monitor, characterize the response characteristics, the spectral dispersion curve, the gamma, the contrast ratio, and things from that hero, and then use advanced math and algorithms to then apply 
those color matching functions to that plasma that we're trying to match to that Sony OLED. And through some of these advanced functions, we're able to not make the displays perfect, but we're, we're able to get them extremely close. In fact, a lot of our customers are floored by the results that we can get between two very different technologies after applying some of these advanced techniques, uh, which aren't, uh, unfortunately, there isn't a standard yet for these advanced techniques. There's, there's proposed specifications, there are proposed standards, nothing's been written in stone, but it's not necessarily wrong in using these advanced techniques, especially when you're saying I'm matching a hero and the hero's calibrated to the exacting specification. You just need to know that if I was to take that plasma out of this room, it's not necessarily calibrated perfectly to the regular specification. It was calibrated to more perceptually match that Sony OLED, which is calibrated to that specification. So it gets a little complicated, but it ends up uh, coming out pretty, pretty good. <laughs> To spend a couple hours with you learning more about that would be just wonderful. Um, do you use something like the SpectraCal's dispersion curves? I think you made some mention of this in the notes. Um, SpectraCal has some models built into their software, and yeah, I do I do use some of those. I, I don't think they came up with them. I think a lot of them are based on some of these proposed standards that are coming, um, and they've just implemented those curves within their software. So yeah, yeah, I certainly will work with those some of those built-in curves that they have and um, some of that data. And CalMan is just so powerful of a program. You can really, mm. if you know what you're doing and you take the time with it, you can do just about anything you need to do with it. Just about, you know, I mean, they're always adding features and functionality that you're like, ah, I, I really wanted that. But you can do quite a bit with it and you can actually do quite a, quite a great job monitor matching with the stuff that they have built in there. Mm, well, we'll have to have a separate uh, show just on that. That's fascinating. Well, back on the business end, I'm curious. I'm always curious about trends. Are you seeing an increase or a decrease uh, over the years, uh, especially in smaller studios or in general? What, what, what's it been like for you? Sure. Um, well, business for me has been great. You know, it's hard <laughs> to complain when you're really busy. I mean, Every year I seem to grow my business just a little bit more and given the last, you know, three to five years of, of the industry and the market and the economy in general, it's been pretty impressive that I've been able to stay, stay alive and not only stay alive, but grow each year. So I'm very, very fortunate in that regard. The market though has changed, I think, very dramatically over the past, you know, four, five, ten years. I started calibrating, I took my ISF training in the year 2000, I started calibrating my first few displays in 2000, sort of grew it from then. So I'm coming up on my, you know, 14th year here of calibration. I can tell you when I started calibrating, it was almost always end users, consumer homes, TVs. Right. And right. now I, I feel like I see less and less of that. Not that it's non-existent. I still do quite a bit of end user displays and, um, and home systems, but I think is displays are getting better as that market has gotten more saturated with calibrators. It's certainly, certainly changed. You have companies such as Best Buy coming in and, and offering calibration to the masses at a more massive level. And um, it may not be the same service that someone like myself or even yourself, I know you calibrate um, as well, provide to our customers, but customers don't quite understand that there's a difference between calibration. So 
you know, we throw around the term calibration. People think it, it, of it as very synonymously, whether they hire Best Buy, Avocal, or yourself, they'll say, oh, well, you know, I had Best Buy come calibrate, or I had Avocal come calibrate, or I had Tom Parrish come calibrate. Um, right. It's a very right. ambiguous term. What is calibration, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. As an example, and you'd be shocked, Tom, the, the <laughs> stuff I've heard in the industry over the years, just absolutely shocked. Sometimes I'm just floored by it. But as an example, I can adjust brightness, contrast, color, and tint on the display and tell you I calibrated it. And you'd say, great, he calibrated it. He adjusted the brightness, contrast, color, and tint. Well, yeah, sure. I, I calibrated brightness, contrast, color, and tint. That doesn't mean I did a full calibration. It doesn't mean I did an all-inclusive calibration. You know, what about the grayscale? What about the color management system? What about mm-hmm. gamma? Did I measure gamma? Did I pick the right gamma curve? What about sharpness and, and various enhancement circuitry or noise reduction filters? You know, were those addressed? Were those set properly for the application? Maybe I used insufficient test patterns or equipment to adjust these parameters, leaving ambiguity within the adjustment itself. A good example of that would be the the Pluge pattern. If you remember the Pluge test pattern, which is just this industry staple test pattern of how to set black level, um, where you have your below black, your black, and then I think it's about a 2% above black and a 4% above black um, bar. And you want to set it where you don't see the below black and you don't see, you know, black below black and black blend together and you depending on gamma you may just want to see the two percent and the four percent to set it well in today's world displays have gotten so good in the digital solid state display world where that's really not enough detail within the pattern i could set my black level on a display at 50 Mm -hmm. and see the two and the four and not the black and the below black i could set it at 48 and still see the two and the four and not the black and the below black and two people could look at that and say yeah that's right well wait is 50 right or is 48 right which (laughs) one is right right so so those type of issues they may not present such a problem if you're just going into a consumer's home and and setting up one display and they only ever see that one display and that one display was calibrated because you have nothing to compare it to but when you start to calibrate multiple displays, when you start to monitor match, when you start to go into a facility or even a home where you're calibrating a bedroom TV and a living room TV and a kitchen TV and you want to make sure they match throughout the home as best as possible as well as, you know, again, hit that standard. Those types of patterns start to become insufficient and they lead to error and they lead to not quite perfection. So, you know, we often find ourselves working with companies like Spears and Monsell and Geocane Productions and trying to help develop test patterns that are more specific so that you can say, well, no, there's no discrepancy here. It needs to be at 50. You know, it doesn't need to be at 49. It doesn't need to be at 51. Because if I go to 51, I see this. And if I go to 49, I see that. And right. both those okay. are wrong. So I know 50 is the setting here. So in terms of the market changing and in terms of everyone out there, I think it's really become an issue in terms of what calibration is and the different levels of calibration that people offer. And as we've seen more and more companies come into market, such as again, the Best Buy guys, and I'm sure Best Buy has some excellent calibrators. I'm sure they have some poor calibrators, you know, and you never know who you're going to get when you hire a, a big company like that. 
but you also don't know necessarily what kind of job they're going to do. So, you know, I say I calibrate video systems. They say they calibrate video systems. You say you calibrate video systems. Well, we all may use different equipment. We all may offer a different level of service. We all may come in and do quite a bit different in terms of the accuracy of the calibration and the thoroughness of the calibration. And I think the market has really shifted because we see people not educating the consumer on um, whether it's the post house is the consumer, you know, is the client, I should say, the post house is the client or the end user is the client of, you know, here's why you'd hire me over this guy or not even necessarily that. Forget trying to differentiate yourself from the competition saying, here's what I offer. Right. Here's why you want to hire me, period, just in general. And here's what a real calibration is all about versus, you know, simply saying, because I get calls all the time, you may get calls all the time too, well, Best Buy will do it for 100 bucks, well, 150 bucks, 200 bucks, you know, depending on the deal that they're being offered that day, I hear vast amounts of difference, I'll hear things about different calibers, well, this guy will do it for, for 200, and you're charging me X, and, uh, and you go, okay, well, you know, let me, let me tell you why I'm this much money, <laughs> and let me tell you what I'm doing and what I'm using and how I'm going about your, your process here. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, 98% of the time I get the job. And, um, I think just that level of education is, is so important. And even in post-production, I walk into post-production facilities. I've had guys tell me they put up a simpty color bar. They set mm -hmm. color and tint and the, yeah. and the little black level, the plush that's in the simpty color bar. And they say that was calibrated, right? Isn't that calibration? Is it? Wait, there's more adjustments to this? Really? And, I, and then I show them an advanced menu and they go, oh, I had no idea those were there. Well, let's calibrate it. And you go, whoa, if I had just educated you on this, I would have had 30 monitors in 30 rooms that I could have calibrated, you know? And uh, I could have been making a lot more money and, and um, you know, grow my business some more. But, uh, but there is that lack of, well, you know, it's so many levels. There's that lack of fundamental education of, well, what can be adjusted on this monitor? Why do I want to have it adjusted? How should it be adjusted? What should I look for in a calibration? What kind of equipment should I be using? Those kind of things simply aren't addressed. And uh, I don't know how you feel about it. Maybe you feel that uh, they are being addressed. Maybe you feel the same way. I don't know. But I don't see no, it being addressed I, that often. My, my th I, I think fundamentally both your philosophy and your observations are correct, and that's that it, it really it boils down to education in this particular marketplace. And I think in particular it, it um, is heightened by the fact – by two facts. One is there's so many different display technologies now. Okay, there's a lot of white LCD or LED LCD, but I mean – there's so many different manufacturers of those. And even within a manufacturer, I've gone into a site where they've had exactly the same monitor, like two Samsungs for like attached monitors or something. But they were definitely manufactured at two completely different times. They had different firmware, and you couldn't get one calibrated over the other. You couldn't match them if your life depended on it. And, sure. Um, so, you know, there there's that. But also, unfortunately, there's not a lot of – and the definition of terms of, of brightness and or black or gamma or the contrast or what some manufacturers use those terms differently, right? That's true. That's true. So a lot of manufacturers will use confusing. those terms quite a bit differently. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, like, yeah, the guy's just trying to get his content produced. And um, 
So, um, but like, luckily, like you said, there's a rather unique and fairly consistent trait with post-production people is they, they kind of want to know. They're curious. They're just curious types, and they're self-motivated to learn. And, and when someone comes in and willing to explain it to them, they're, they're often quite like sponges. So um, Yes. Well, um, so let's talk gear, all right? Sure. What kind of equipment are you using these days? So the equipment's always changing. My equipment's always ever-changing. Right now in my permanent toolkit is pretty much a photo research uh, PR-655 spectroradiometer with a 3D <laughs> attachment. Well, surely and, that doesn't um, change that much. What's that? Surely that one doesn't change that much. That one doesn't change that often. Every now and then I get very fortunate and I get the opportunity to work on like a seven series photo research. Um, whether oh, um, photo research has been very kind to loaned, uh, loan a meter for a project or uh-huh. a studio may have something like a 735 sitting around and we'll end up you know, using that. But for the most part, it's the 655, which is a pretty solid piece. And then I use that in conjunction with the latest version of Calman, yeah. always updating my Calman because you got to have the latest and greatest little features and functionality and bug fixes. And and then I've got a bunch of test pattern generators in my toolkit. I've got a mm-hmm. Video Forge 4K. I've got the uh, Virtual Forge with the T-Tap. Um, I've got a Video Forge 1. I've got a Fabrics mm-hmm. SXD, which is uh, distributed by Leader. It's a um, single link, dual link, three gig HDSDI pattern generator. And what's really nice about that is it has a built-in waveform monitor vector scope, and it's portable. So it's really nice to have when we like to check levels at studios oh, when we're you know we sweet. get that monitor perfect, and then we say, okay, let's throw some test patterns up from our Avid or our Final mm-hmm. Cut or. Uh, DaVinci or whatever we're working with. Let's test the output and make sure the output's just right so we can we can actually scope that, which is really cool because every now and then you run into an issue, especially if they're using outboard converter boxes and stuff. You may find there's a setting wrong. And, and, if, and as you know, I mean, if the setting, if the signal, you can calibrate the display perfect, but if the signal going to that display is wrong, then you know you're going to have a problem. You either have to compensate for that problem in the display calibration, which then makes it married, right? You get married to that issue. So if the issue ever gets fixed or the display gets moved around to something that doesn't have the issue, then you have to readjust the display. Or you can hopefully fix the, the issue and get a standard output throughout your signal path, which, I mean, in post-production, it's pretty easy to get a standard output from most products these days. It's not... It's not rocket science. If you know what you're doing in setup of, you know, your control panels and your software, you can pretty much achieve what you want, whether it be a full range signal or a Sinti legal signal, you know, you can pretty much configure it the way you want. You're, you're 99% of the time going to get that. So I'm just curious if you'd be interested or willing to talk a little bit more about your choice of Kalman. I mean, you're you're kind of the go-to guy for the for the main studios out there, and uh, so your choice of the software that ultimately—I mean, obviously the probe is probably the most important part, but then the next part is the interpretation of the signal coming from the probe, and what, and then of course the adjustments that you make. But uh, why Kalman? Sure. Well, there's—I mean, there's a lot of software programs out there, and I don't want to say like. Yeah, there are. I don't want to say any are are bad necessarily. I don't have experience with a lot of the latest versions of some of these other programs that are out there. But I've looked at most of them 
over time. And there have been various reasons, whether it be a licensing issue, like some companies sell software where um, their licenses simply, you've bought our software, you are allowed to use our software on products that you own, but you can't go around using it as a business. So that locks you out of some companies right there because you don't want to get sued. Um, but those programs are often somewhat limited in and of right. themselves because they are meant more so for you to use on your own gear. So it's meant to build your kit a specific way with the support that they provide and then use it. And if you're doing that, it's excellent. You know, I mean, I've used some of those, I've tested some of those and they're, right. they're excellent given those situations. But as a professional calibrator, is someone that's going into just about any situation. I mean, I work on anything. I'll work on digital cinema projectors to broadcast monitors to consumer monitors to $500 TVs in someone's bathroom <laughs> if they want it calibrated. And even I've done a few medical monitors for um, medical imaging. Um, I've done display walls for corporations that might have a, a display wall in their lobby. So you really need to be able to work on any brand, any make, any model, and really make that work. And mm -hmm. not that you can't use those other programs for that, but Calman, one of their big things is that we support everything. That's sort of a motto that I always hear from the guys at Calman. We support everything. I mean, when I bought my Fabrics XXD generator, which was like $7,000, um, I didn't have support for it from Calman. So Derek wow. and the team up at SpectraCal were like, send it to us. You know, and a week later, I had support and I could control it from Calman and I could do everything I wanted to do <laughs> from it. So it's very hard to get a team, I think, that's going to do that because a lot of other companies might not have the resources or the time to necessarily say, well, we're going to we're going to do this and really make this work for you. So I like that Calman. I can work with any one of my generators. I can use it with my photo research. I can use it with different light meters. I mean, I've I've worked with Minolta light meters excuse me, from time to time, and it works. You know, I've worked with various tri-stimulus color analyzers. I've tried testing, and it works, you know. And so it's really nice to be able to have it work with many things. They've also now got their generator built into the computer where you can use sort of their virtual forge uh, test pattern generator and put it, like, right on your output card or your computer, go right through the system um, and and really, you know, make it very simple to get through a signal path um, that someone's using. So... Those guys are um, really on top of things in my mind. The other thing that's really important to me that I think other companies haven't really provided is the customization that I can do with Cowman. I mean, I can create my own custom reports. I can change charts mm -hmm. and size and workflow. And I mean, you've probably used Cowman, so you know what I'm talking about. You can say, this is how I want to work. This is what works best for me. You can also create different types of things yeah. to work with certain types of systems. So if you want to do monitor matching, you can say, I want to create this for my monitor matching. If I'm building a 3D lookup table, I can create this for 3D lookup tables. I can, you know, so you can really make it the way you want. And what's funny is I was just up at SpectraCal a few weeks ago and um, working with uh, Chris over there on my workflow and, and some of the ways I work. And it's funny because it's like my way is so unique. And <laughs> they were looking at it and I think Chris said, I'm not going to show this to anybody because if anyone sees this, they're going to be calling support, wanting to know how to use it <laughs> because there's no instructions on my workflow. Like a lot of their workflows have instructions. I go, I don't need instructions. I know what I'm doing. So, so <laughs> he goes, if we gave this to customers, people would be like, well, 
what does this mean? How do I do this? We'll be getting tons of support calls. So I'm just going to leave you have it and you do your thing and um, have that. And I, and I, I kind of like that. And I like the, the team and their philosophy and the fact that they will they will make it work with anything. They'll work with you to make sure things work. If I find a bug, they often fix it fairly quickly. They're a team that I don't think ever they've told me uh-huh. it's not us, it's them. They may say it's not us. It's them, but let's see oh, if we I can find that. a workaround. Yeah. You know, that's usually their attitude. They find a yes one way or another. They find a yes one way or another. And I can't tell yeah. you how many times I've been on jobs. You may have yourself been on jobs, but one of the things that over the years has been a nightmare for most people in the audio video industry is HDMI and HDMI handshaking from like a Blu-ray player to a receiver to a TV. Oh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many times I've been on a job and I call up a manufacturer. I won't name any, but you call up a manufacturer and you say, hey, you know, I'm trying to use this Blu-ray player with your receiver and this, you know, Samsung or Sony or LG or Panasonic TV. And if I bypass your receiver, it works just fine. If I go near your receiver... It's, I can't get a picture from it. And they always go, well, it's, it's not us. It's the, it's the TV or the Blu-ray player. And you go, well, what's funny is the TV and the Blu-ray player talk to each other. And even if it is their fault, it's a compatibility with your product. So let's work together to see what's going on. Can you call the Blu-ray manufacturer? Can you call the TV manufacturer? Can you see what's going on? And can you guys work together to fix this? But no, they want you to call around. And again, SpectraCal is one of those companies. And not that other companies won't work with you. I don't want to say that, but they're just a company that I liked their product from the get-go. I like what I can do in it. I think it's a very robust product. I like the support that they give you. I like the fact that I can go out and use it as a professional calibrator without getting sued. They, and they, they're always updating it. They're always fixing it. They're always building in compatibility. And I've asked for custom charts. I've asked for, um, custom graphs. I've asked for, um, various ways of doing things and they almost always deliver on it, which is so great because I've asked a lot of other companies, can you make it do this? Can you have it do that? Can you build in support for this? Can you build in support for that? And Mm -hmm. almost always I get a resounding no, or we'll put it on the timeline. Okay, well, when can I expect it? We have no idea. We don't know. Yeah, the answer is we don't know, but thank you. That's right. So So, some nuts and bolts questions here. Uh, Do you ever use a uh, tri-stimulus calorimeter? And if so, which ones do you like? I mean, surely, uh, I mean, fundamentally, the spectral radio meters is 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 better, yada yada, more accurate, but sure. they're slower. And they are you've slower. got so many hours in a day. That's right. So that's right. So um, what's your fallback? Well, <laughs> I have a couple tri stimulus devices that I carry with me for various applications, but you know, it's so tough because we've done some testing, me and a couple video engineers here in Hollywood, we, we said, we're going to test some tri-stims just for fun. I mean, it wasn't this end-all sure. white paper, but we took two photo research, two Minolta spectroradiometers, and we had about three or four displays, uh, uh, from a plasma to an LCD with a CCFL to an LCD with an LED, and I think we had yeah. like a projector um, on like a six or seven foot screen, and we said, we're going to test, you know, it was like five to ten color analyzers, sure. you know, tri-stimulus. So it was, it's not indicative of everything on the market, but we shot each display with the photo research and the Minolta, and they were within right. like .00 one plus or minus, maybe two in, in the furthest case, which 
is within the tolerance of measurement. If you talk to these manufacturers, yeah. I think most of them are plus or minus 0.002 or 0.003 is right, okay right. for the tolerance of measurement. And these were well within all the manufacturers' tolerances of measurement. So we're going, okay, well, we think Minolta's doing a good job. We think Photo Research is doing a good job. And what's funny is Minolta and Photo Research are pretty much measuring identically. So you'd think you've, you've got something pretty solid there. And then you take some of these tri-stims and you find that they're not very accurate to those devices on these displays. And they're further out than you know the tolerance of measurement, even when you would take some of the external tables. So you'd take the like on a lot of trisimus devices, you know, you'd load like an LED LCD table to it to kind of get it closer on that display. Right. And we'd right. find that, yeah. you know, maybe it wasn't depending on the model, maybe it wasn't terribly far off. Maybe it was like, oh, I could live with that. It's just going a tad red or a tad green or something. But it wasn't consistent on every single one. You know, so some, maybe on that LCD CCFL, oh, that's pretty close. But then you go to the LED and you go, hmm, that's further off than I'd like it to be. So Drystim for me has really come down to if I use it, I'm programming it per display. Meaning if I let's say I'm doing a plasma and I'm gonna pull out one of my tri-stims and say I'm gonna go quicker on this on this display, I'll shoot it and profile it. Um, with my photo research for that particular display, then do the calibration. Then when I'm done, I remove it and I do my final measurement with the photo research just to make sure that, hey, this is right. So I might use it to save time in making my adjustments and going, okay, I'm getting near real-time feedback from my tri-stimulus and I can really adjust this grayscale. Then I get it really close and I measure it with the photo research. And I may even measure it and say, wow, it's just a hair red. Okay, I'm going to pull out just a little red and then final it and do that. Honestly, I don't do that a lot. I almost always just say I'm going to work within the photo research <laughs> um, and take the little bit of extra. Go ahead. It makes sense. I mean, it makes sense. It, I mean, you you know it. You trust it. It may be a little slower, but but you know it. You trust it. <laughs> yeah, you know it. You trust it. And um you know, every so often, you know, we, I get it calibrated about every year. And, and actually, I'm fortunate around town um, with clients here in Hollywood. A lot of studios use Photo Research 655s. Um, actually, that's probably the most common light meter at some of these post-production houses. So what we'll do is we'll often shoot mine to theirs and see how they are. And almost all the time, especially if theirs has been recently calibrated, they're like dead on with one another. Um, every now and then, like I went into a studio, um, this one company bought the studio. It was a studio a few years ago that went out of business. And this one company bought the building with all the assets in it. And there was a 655 in it. And it had been last calibrated in like 2008. And this is you know Whoa. a couple months ago. And we shot it and we go, yeah, that's going green. <laughs> so, you know, they sent it in for calibration, but, um, what they wanted was simply, Dave, come in and do our, our rooms and get them calibrated, and then we want a way to do a verification. So they wanted to have their photo research that came with the building simply to do a couple, you know, let's measure a couple of quick patterns every week sure. or every day and make sure that we're still yeah. on target. And if we need to, we'll have you come in because they don't know necessarily how to adjust it, but they knew sure, I showed them sure. enough to just verify that you're still within your, your target. Part so, of education. Yeah, part of the education. So, um, so it was kind of funny to see that they like pulled this thing out of mothballs because uh, I think the business was like out of business for almost two years before it got sold. You know what I mean? It was just sitting in this room, and and it was kind of funny that it's like had dust on it and stuff. I go, I feel like that's probably going to need calibration. And then sure enough, it was 
it was certainly in need of calibration. But um, but I'm very fortunate to look at some of the other meters and go, ah, I feel very confident mine's dead on because mine's matching yours, and you know that's that's pretty good. And even if you know there are studios with Minolta's out here. I've never had a problem with them not matching within the tolerance. You know, you might measure something and yeah. have one measure 313, 329, and one measure 314, 328, and you go, oh, wow. I mean, come on. <laughs> a thousandth, yeah, it's not going to, yeah. Exactly. So, um, two, or, two or three, two or three thousandths in the green area, maybe you can start to see it, but generally, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, well, on, on the bits and on the bits and bytes area, I've, I've had a question um, for my own clarification as well as maybe just a better way of educating clients that ask this question. It you know it seems to me that the BT eighteen eighty six standard is rapidly becoming a kind of de facto standard for gamma. Um, I'm curious if that's what you see. Maybe you can explain what that is and how that's different from just using a power curve. You know, uh-huh. like in Kalman, for instance, and which one do you use? Um, well, depending on what the customer wants, ultimately, depends okay. on what I use. Um, if a customer wants their display calibrated to spec, I'm going to say let's use 1886 because that is the spec. That is the standard. Okay. But we're seeing a very slow shift to rec 1886. And, you know, as much as I'm trying to push clients to adhere to standards for more consistency and, and more reliability throughout the industry, I mean, that's what standards all about. If everyone's on the standard, then everyone should be in the same, you know, at the same page in the same ballpark, you know, hitting the same targets. And it's going to allow for more consistency from studio to studio and, and throughout all the content. But unfortunately, a lot of facilities are used to working with other targets, the most common target is probably 2.2 when you're talking about digital displays. And that came that came from the Rec. 709 standard that was written in, in I think, 1991, 1990, 1991. Right. And the Rec. 709 standard says camera gamma, input gamma, should be 2.2. And I think a lot of people right. assumed, well, if we're taking it in at 2.2, we should be putting it out at 2.2. So if the camera gamma is 2.2, maybe the display gamma should be 2.2. But back when that spec was written, most things were CRTs in the 90s. You know, they weren't LCDs. They weren't flat panels. So you had post-production houses doing color correction on what was most commonly the Sony BVM broadcast video monitor, CRT display. I mean, there were JVC monitors and and um, other monitors in the market that were CRT-based, but probably the most common for color correction was the Sony BVM. And those monitors, even the JVC monitors and stuff, were about a 2.4 gamma. So oh. we were shifting to this Rec. 709.22 input gamma, and then people were color correcting that at a 2.4 gamma based on the CRT. And the CRT, I mean, it was an analog device. It was a tube. So you'd measure some, maybe you had 238, maybe you had 242, maybe you had 235, maybe you had 245. You know, it, it was sort of a moving target, but it was always kind of hovering around that 2.4, which is, I think, why a lot of people were sort of talking about how it was 2.4, because it averaged right around 2.4. Now, enter the digital display and people starting to move out those Sony BVMs. Some people in the industry were like, well, we want to match our BVM, so we're going to try and stick to approximately a 2.4. Then you had 
a lot of digital displays that didn't have the ability to do 2.4. There's a lot of digital displays even today that are made that only have, say, a 2.2 gamma in them. So oh, you had right. studios exactly. going to digital displays and only using the 2.2 gamma. So you ended up with a huge moving target around the industry, depending on where something was mastered and who was doing it, was really determining what the gamma was. And other than knowing, if you were in the business and you said, I know that TV show's done at this place and that place is using a 2.2 gamma, you wouldn't know what it was mastered for and, and what was done. Cause they don't, they don't tag this data. It's not like you buy a Blu-ray disc and it says, Oh, mastered at 2.2 gamma. Just like it says, you know, two, three, five or two, three, nine or one, seven, eight or one, eight, five for the aspect ratio. You simply wouldn't know. So a lot of the people in the standards committees basically said, we need to come up with <laughs> a standard for gamma because this is becoming more and more of an issue and more and more people around town are talking about it or saying, well, you know, what's right? What should I be using? I'm getting these variations right. when I do something here and I send it over there and, you know, there's this whole argument and no one was wrong. You know, I mean, you could say, I'm using 2.2 gamma. Are you wrong? No, there's no specification for it. You could say I'm using 2.4 gamma, are you wrong? No, you could say, well, my reasoning is the Sony BVM was 2.4 and that's what we always use, so we're using 2.4. You know, the other people could say, well, 2.2 input, 2.2 output, you know, and they could make these various arguments and no right. one was really exactly. wrong. But now, standards committee said, okay, you know, they came out with the recommendation 1886, document 1886, uh, which talks about, you know, the electro-optical transfer function on HD displays, which is, you know, essentially the gamma, the gamma curve. And they actually made it a little more complicated. And my understanding to why they made it a little more complicated rather than just a simple power function was to try and make it a little more consistent from display to display and technology to technology by saying, you know, we're going, we're going to measure black, we're going to, you know, measure white, we're going to do our, our curve here based on this black, you know, a black measurement. They can sort of help make it look more perceptually accurate between displays with different contrast ratios. Um, right. Is a, is a large part of my understanding of that specification. So they said, okay, well, we realize, you know, an OLED is going to have, you know, deeper blacks, richer blacks is going to have a better contrast ratio than, let's say, a CCFL LCD. So if we look at gamma and we do a 2.4 power function on an LCD with a CCFL backlight and then we do it on an OLED, gamma will still look different even though it measures exactly the same because there's more contrast so because we see more contrast, we see the gamma differently, perceptually. Now I see what you're talking about because the actual display technology in the way it, it, it emits the light, if you want to call it that, is uh, the mechanism that it's using is fundamentally different. So perceptually, one will appear to have more contrast than the other or, or have a different gamma than the other. Exactly, exactly. So perceptually, it'll look like the gamma is different because you'll see, you'll, you'll be like, wow, that looks those blacks look darker and richer than those blacks. And they are, but in a world where you have a plasma and an LCD and an OLED and, you know, various types of technologies now coming out and even projectors and you have consumers looking at you walk into Best Buy and you see that Best Buy wall of monitors and you say, well, the picture is one picture and it should look one way because it's the same exact picture I'm seeing on all of these. How do we help mm -hmm. make that a reality. And I think these these people on these standards committees are way smarter than I am. They're brilliant mathematicians and engineers. And 
they said, well, you know, if we make Gamma sort of a moving target because we make it based on the characteristics of that display, we can sort of make a more consistent gamma response curve perceptually from display to display to display. So we can do a dark measurement, a black level measurement, and say, well, this is what black is, and then let's add that to our calculation of gamma, and let's put that into the curve. And if we do that, we'll get more consistency where if, you know, if we have one foot Lambert for black, which would be a very light black, and we have a 0.001 foot Lambert of black, and we put that in the measurement, you know, they're sort of calculating out some of those some of those differences. I mean, still, you know, it's really difficult to make perfect matches when you have different displays with different characteristics and different capabilities. And when you really look at the issue, and I've been doing more and more research over the years on that issue and talking to engineers about it, it's it's not really possible to make a perfectly matched display with a three-color system. You need more control. So... Yeah. We saw Sharp sort of trying to get into that with the Quatron, right? You know, adding a yellow filter into it. Uh -huh. And um, if we could get to a system, you know, where we had red, green, blue, yellow, cyan, magenta, maybe even a white filter within this display. And we said, okay, now we can manipulate these points. We can start to calibrate out differences in spectral response curves a little more than we can now because we'd have more manipulation over the spectrum by manipulating those different parts of the spectrum. We'd be able to get those, those parts in between, you know, blue and green and green and red by having those secondary colors there. So in today's technology, with a three-color system, which is what most displays are, you only have so much manipulation you can do um, yeah. to change the characteristics. So if you have an OLED with a specific spectral dispersion curve, and then you have an LCD mm -hmm. with an LED backlight with a different spectral dispersion curve. And you say, now yeah. I want to make these look the same. Well, you can calibrate your grayscale exactly the same, and it may look different. Like your photo research might say, this is D65 on this, and it's D65 right. on that. And then you look at them and you say, well, wait, that one looks more green than that one. Why? It's uh -huh. measuring the same. Well, it looks more green because the what's made up of that white point, right? The spectral dispersion curve that's now balanced based on a specific formula to that white point is different than the spectral dispersion curve from the LCD that's now balanced to that white point. So you've got a different mixture of colors creating that same white because we look at energy, right? We look at, we use the 1931 CIE formula in our standard to calculate D65 right. and we look at that and we average it out and we say, okay, here's D65. And then we look at another one and we average it out and we say, this is D65. Well, we're taking different, different amounts of things and then averaging them. So even though they average to D65, they're not necessarily the exact thing. It's like taking, I don't know, let's see here. If I take three parts green, one part blue and two parts red and I average that and I get three, right? But if I take four parts green, one part red and one part blue and I average that, I get three. But it's made up of a lot of green, right? So it's going to mm -hmm. look a little different. And that's sort of where monitor matching gets very complicated because you got to try and take those differences in the actual spectral curve and try to find the best way to 
average those out and find, and there are, there are people that have done a lot of research in that. And that's some of the stuff that we integrate when we do monitor matching is we take some of that new research that's out there from very smart people, smarter than myself and, um, say, okay, well, this is what they found the human eye sensitivity is for the, you know, they call it the standard observer. This is what we're finding is here. And then we have this and then, okay, well, what if we average this way? And what if we do this? Can we get that to, to match? So it's certainly, becoming more and more of an issue within the industry. And I think BT 1886, to get back to the gamma that we were talking about here, um, to get back to BT 1886, I think they were trying to say, okay, well, we have different technologies and we have different things here with different capabilities. And if we use a more of a, you know, what I like to call sort of a dynamic gamma curve, because it's based on the capability of the display as to exactly right. how that's going to track 1886, you're going to get more consistency from modern modern. Again, these people were very smart. You know, I thought of something like that thinking, man, it'd be great if we had a way to more consistently track gamma between, you know, this monitor, that monitor, and that monitor with these different characteristics. But I didn't go, hmm, what if we did this? You know, like I, I just thought I would love to have that so I could more consistently get gamma between these things. And then, of course, 1886 came and I said, oh, cool, I was reading it. And I said, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, they're actually, these people are actually, you know, thinking about this and thinking ahead and saying, okay, you know, how can we do these things? And so more and more studios are certainly moving to 1886, but you get a large part of the industry is saying, well, we've always been 2-2. We don't want to move because no one's been unhappy. We have, you know, people that want to move because they're like, well, that's the new standard. I'm going to move. We have a lot of independent colorists saying, I'm going to work in 1886 because guess what? If a client comes back to me and says, my stuff doesn't look right, I can say, well, here's my calibration report. It was calibrated to the specification. What doesn't look right? And if they say, well, the gamma's wrong, I can say, no, I said I was going to, you know, color this to spec and that's the spec. So if you're looking at on something else that's 2-2, that's not the spec. You know, you can't come at me at like that, you know? Um, I don't know many people that have ever had an issue with that. I've had issues with studios where... We, I worked on a, a, a calibration for uh, a director of a digital cinema projector and it was set up for 709 and 1886 and you know they specific, his team basically said we want perfect spec and then he was looking at a Blu-ray of a movie he, he made <laughs> and the director said this looks really dark in some of these really dark scenes. Like I can't see the lapel, I can't see certain right. things in, in, in some of these darker yeah. scenes that I know when I sat in the color session was right. And sure enough, the company that mastered the disc came out with their photo research measure, the projectors, the projector's perfect. So then they said, okay, well, now we're going to send Dave over to your studio. And we went over to the studio and we measured the studio. And we said, okay, your, your, your projector's great, but it's at 2-2 gamma. Do you know why it's at 2-2 gamma? Well, we always use 2-2 gamma. And I go, yeah, but well, why are you using 2-2 gamma? 2-2 gamma is not the specification. Well, we've always used 2-2 gamma. Well, are you aware of BT1886? And the projectionist goes, I'm aware of it, but I'm just the guy that sets up the projector and does it. And my boss has told me to do 2-2. Oh. <laughs> oh. A major, major studio, publicly traded company. And um, yeah. that's the mentality of, well, we're aware of this. The color science people at our studio are aware of this, but we're reluctant to make the shift because we've always done things at this. And... No one has complained. No one has said anything. And I think it's sort of, do we really want to make that jump? And 
you know, I don't know the logic. I haven't had a chance to sit down with their, you know, upper management, their color scientists and say, well, how come you're not doing this? But we found out exactly what's wrong. So we go back to the director's screening room and we change the DCI projector. We create a memory for 2.2 and he sits down and looks at it and I get an email. Loves it. It's perfect. Thanks. (laughs) So, uh, you know, and they're basically like his management's going, so basically they mastered the Blu-ray wrong. Well, what should we do here? Should we have the Blu-ray remastered and re-released? You know, and I don't think they're going to do that because of the cost and the, and the you know. Well, you know, I, that there's a lot there, and, and I'm actually very glad you went through that. And I'm planning on in, at keeping all of this in. It's 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 in some way that makes perfect sense to me now as a double E and kind of understanding that you're 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 sort of in this calibration process you're saying well what's the electronic transfer capability in the, the device because uh, it's going to be different from display device to display device and you take that in consideration and make the appropriate gamma curve based on that versus slamming a an old standard on there and trying to fit to that is one way of saying it Sure. But I've often wondered when I'm watching Blu-rays, in particular streaming, which is obviously not quite as good as Blu-ray, but nevertheless, um, all the various uh, major shows, uh, and I'm like, darn, that looks dark. And I know I calibrated that projector, and it just, you know, and I'll go in there and I'll change the gamma kind of on the fly, which my wife just hates, and uh, and just pop it up a little bit. But, you know, it's like something's wrong here. I don't sure. know what. And I don't know who to ask, but it's not right. <laughs> sure. Okay, and, well, we're moving. Um, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it's it's funny because some colorists, um, the ones that like to work in 1886 have basically, uh, I hear this a lot, the logic is, well, 1886 is going to look darker, right? And I go, yes, because, you know, it's a, it's closer to a 2-4 curve. So it's going to come out of black slower and the image is going to look darker. So if anything, they're going to look at 1886 and brighten it up a little bit. So at 2.2, right. it's just going to look brighter and more punchy. But if you master it 2.2 and then look at it on 1886, things are going to look dark. So most colors say, well, it's better for things to look punchy, I find, than for things to look too dark. So they'll often work in 1886, again, with the mentality of, well, if I work in 1886, A, I'm within the spec. If anyone comes after me, you know, and I have never heard of a client coming after a colorist for this, no, but yeah. if yeah. a colorist did get in question about how they colored it and what their equipment was set up to, they could say, hey, I'm in spec. And um, their thought is, well, worst case, if I do 1886 and they look at it at 2.2, they're going to basically just see a little bit brighter, punchier picture. And that's almost never a bad thing. <laughs> so, Well, that's brilliant, David. Thank you. That's a perspective I'm going to use with regards to BT 1886. Really, really helpful. Let's uh, switch the discussion over to LUT boxes. Sure. You have any uh, just sort of interesting observations or uh, favorites, or are you seeing more of those being used now these days? Or, um, you know, I don't see. I I definitely see three D LUT boxes being utilized more and more in post production. Um, you do. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do see it being used more and more um, to to correct the display. You know, if we're talking about correcting right. the display, obviously there right. are. Look, That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, there. Are, sometimes are used for a look of a film, but I don't, I don't really have too much to do with that. But in terms of 
pre-correcting the signal to correct for the display. I'm seeing it more and more as the prices are coming down. I don't necessarily have a favorite LUT box. Um, yeah. I think there are a lot of good ones out on the market. When you look at it, I mean, you got the HD Link Pro, which is sort of a better than nothing LUT box. Better you know, than it's nothing, not, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's not perfect. It's uh, It's got some flaws in it. It's not a very complex LUT that they allow you to load in there, but it's somewhat common right. because a lot of people have those and they get them for very good prices right. and they like to they like to use those. And again, it's the, well, it's better than nothing. It's getting me closer than I would have been able to get right. um, without it. Um, then you have your Fuji IS Mini, right? And that's that seems to be a very nice piece. Love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Fuji IS Mini is very popular because it's affordable. I think it's around 1300 retail. Is that right? Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it can hold one lot at a time, I think, and it can hold a more complex lot. So it can do mm-hmm. a, a better job, you know, than an HDMI Pro just because it can handle a larger lot and it can it can um, have more points in it. Then you get up to some of the more expensive stuff like the Pluto, and the Pluto is certainly <laughs> right. a nice piece, very expensive, but you can hold a lot of LUTs in it. So right. I think for my customers, most of the time, they're telling me they want one specific standard, like, okay, we want Rec. 709, but, you know, I do a large amount of digital cinema work. So sometimes we'll have customers say, well, oh, I want a P3 as well. And in those situations, right. it's either, well, I'm going to create two LUTs and you're going to have to manually load them, or you can have a nice box like a Pluto and you can, you know, <laughs> change them very easily on the Pluto and switch between the LUTs that you're looking for. So it comes down to, I think, what you're looking for in terms of your post-production facility, in terms of what you, A, can afford, and B, what kind of features and functionality you want. If you want the ability to have more than one lot, more than one standard loaded, and I have clients who say, I want a Rec. 709 with a 2.2 gamma, I want an 1886 gamma, um, I want a P3 with a 2.6 gamma for DCI content, you know, then all of a sudden you start adding up two, three, four lots. I mean, sometimes people have some wacky things they're looking for and they have their reasons for it. Um, and you end up trying to build a lot for that. So, but overwhelmingly, I think in the post-production industry, most people are, are working towards the specific standard they're mastering for, such as Rec. 709. And so a simple, you know, LUT Indonesia Link Pro or a Fuji Ice Mini is going to satisfy the majority of people. And um, they're certainly being used more and more simply to correct for poor display engineering. I, you know, I, I hate right. to say it, but it's like if people would just make displays that can hit the spec and have the adjustments to hit the spec, and we're actually seeing more displays that can hit the spec in the consumer world um, for large displays, right, than we see in the broadcast world, which is which is funny. No kidding. But, um, yeah, wow. I mean, you can buy you can buy a Panasonic plasma um, consumer model and pretty much hit Rec. Seven Hundred Nine and hit your targets. And if you buy a Panasonic Professional Series uh, plasma, you know it doesn't hit Rec. Seven Hundred Nine without a lot. And um, you kind of think to yourself, why can't they just do that? And of course, they did that, right? They did that with the BT series plasmas, right. and they just exactly. discontinued those. So now those are off the market. So they had the pro models that you could put HDSDI into and get your your higher bandwidth uh, inputs, your dual link input if you wanted to, your three G input mm-hmm. if you wanted to, and then they got rid of it. And from what I've heard in the industry, they got rid of it because it wasn't selling well because it was a lot more expensive. And people didn't oh, yeah. uh, didn't purchase them as is I guess as much as they sense. had hoped, but um, those were actually very very nice, very very nice displays. Well, 
A last question, uh, especially as we move a little more toward in the consumer realm, um, but not necessarily consumer. Um, last question, trends. Uh, we're moving into 2014. And those who are listening to this, it probably will be 2014. What, where do you see uh, things going? Uh, you think there'll be a more 4K adoption in studios, uh, OLEDs? What about the Dolby monitors? You ever work with the Dolby monitors, any? Sure, sure. Um, well, 4K is certainly being adopted, especially in digital cinema. A lot of studios yeah. are upgrading at least one of their rooms to a DCI-compliant 4K projector. But that's about nice. where I see it stopping right now, at least today. There are a few rooms with consumer 4K displays with higher resolution content, um, but most are not doing color grading on those displays. If they're doing yeah. color grading, they're doing color grading on those Christie's and those Barco's and uh, those 4K yeah. DCI projectors that might be configured for Rec. 709 to, again, do 4K grading on, um, uh-huh. on, a, on a sharper display. But even if you have a 4K system today, and I haven't seen anything that can hit it. I know the specification's not done, but you know we, we haven't talked about Rec. 2020, which is the Ultra HD specification with a wider color gamut and different specifications outside of Rec. 709. I know it's sort of being changed and moved, and I haven't looked at it in the past month or two, but I haven't seen any displays that can hit Rec. 2020 yet. And... You know, if anyone's doing 4K mastering, what they're simply doing in the industry is saying, hey, we're mastering this, looking at a Rec. 709 display, possibly, you know, digital cinema, so they're looking at it in P3, but they're looking at the detail. And a lot of directors and producers and colorists love looking at the 4K detail. It looks so sharp. It looks so great. And it's a selling point for these studios of, hey, why don't you come master your movie with me? I've got a 4K Mm -hmm. cinema projector. It's going to look really good. And they love, they just love that. And um, so that's what's happening. And I see, I see a lot of studios buying like that Sony 4K consumer monitor and they'll buy it yeah, simply same. to look at the resolution. And that monitor will calibrate fairly well to Rec. 709. You know, it's a, it's a pretty decent monitor. It's nice. still an LCD, still has off-axis viewing issues, etc. I haven't seen anyone actually coloring on it, but, um, but I've seen a lot of studios with those on carts that they might move around the studio or they might move it from room to room and they like to look at, oh, here's your red footage at 4K and look at how clean and sharp that looks and everything. And it does look pretty, it does look pretty nice. I'm going to say it does. It's nice to see that sort of really sharp image. And what's great about looking at it at studios is it's not as compressed as you get it at home. So not only does it look really sharp and clean, but it's also, you know, maybe not even compressed yet, which uh, makes it look that much better. But I think we'll see more and more 4K displays coming out. I think we'll see more and more people working in 4K as the computers get there, as the graphics cards get there, as the uh, as the system moves. I mean, it's certainly the future. You know, everyone's going to want to have that higher resolution. Eventually, like I think you've mentioned before, 8K will you know right, trickle yeah. out. I think we're a long way away from that because of you know all the processing right. that comes in in that. But we'll see it, and I think OLED is going to become more widespread. I think there's a lot of issues with OLED still today. I think that it's a very promising technology. People are starting to use it on a smaller scale in post-production. Those 24-inch Sony OLED monitors, they're phenomenal, and they're starting to become more and more standard around Hollywood as people 
people move towards that. Flanders Scientific now has an OLED out there on the market. Yeah, um, that's absolutely. getting some, some good traction as well. So, um, you know, more and more broadcast display companies are, are starting to come out with OLED. They're starting to address some of the issues with OLED. I know Sony with their A model, right, like doubled the off-axis viewing, the, the viewing angle. So. Um, that was sort of a huge, huge win for them because that was one of the number one complaints. It was like, you have to be right in front of this thing. And if you shift to the left, just the lowest bit, it changes the image. And so then they doubled it within one year. And so I think we'll just see things like that start to go further and further away as they start making the viewing angles bigger and they start dealing with some of the issues maybe in motion and, and stuff that they're having with those panels now. So it's a very exciting time for the industry. I think we're going to see 4K. I think we're going to see more OLED. I think we're going to see more displays have the ability to load 3D LUTs directly into them. I think we're going to see more graphics cards coming out on the market that you can load 3D LUTs directly into that. So you yes, don't need yes. these outboard boxes and you don't have to invest yes. in that. Um, I think that's going to be a big trend over the next uh, one to three years. I think we'll probably even see consumer displays start having the ability to load 3D LUTs into them. I think you're going to start seeing pretty cool stuff from some of these manufacturers that make displays you buy at Best Buy where you can say, I'm going to go buy X display and it's going to have the ability for me to have a calibrator load that 3D LUT right into it or do advanced color management you know, in the method of a 3D lookup table that gets loaded into the display. So I think we're probably a little bit further away on the consumer displays, but I think that that's going to be something that we'll see maybe maybe around 2015, 2016. Well, that'll uh, certainly keep the calibrators busy, won't it? Yeah, yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be pretty exciting to see it. Well, Dave, I just can't thank you enough. This has been fascinating as a colorist and and as a display calibrator myself. I'm just amazed at the complexity of gear and software issues and some politics here and there you know that you have to face on a daily daily basis it's just a bewildering array so thank you for taking so much time with us today for this conversation i, 